Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another deadline comes and goes with no clear answer as to what happens next. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Red flags are being raised today about another essential service that's facing some serious staffing challenges. As Kylie Stanton reports, the people who operate the 911 emergency system say they're at a breaking point and are now making their own call for help. It's the call no one ever wants to have to make. But what's worse is not having anyone pick up at the other end. 911, please fire ambulance. Our 911 operators are stretched thin and people are waiting on hold, whether that be on the emergency line for up to five minutes or on the non-emergency line, in some cases, up to two hours. In an open letter to all British Columbians released Wednesday, the union representing 911 call takers details the state of the province's e-com system, writing this lifeline is in crisis and has been for quite some time. What really needs to happen is that we need more staff and more funding in order to be able to fix the problem for good. A 2021 report found the current roster of 153 full-time call takers needs to increase by 125 positions in order to meet operational demands. That's up by 82%. Since then, they've lost another 20% of that team and 28% of staff are on leave all while the number of calls continues to climb. The impacts were evident during last year's heat dome that pushed the system past its limit. But some residents say it's the things you don't see, like crime reporting or lack thereof, that's having a huge impact. I recently witnessed a drug deal and was on hold so long I had to drop the call to go to an appointment. I called back at 10.30 that night and I was on hold for two hours and 16 minutes. Ecom has issued this response saying, Ecom has been very transparent about the fact our organization is understaffed and underfunded. We share the union's view that the current funding model is inadequate and we need local, regional and provincial levels of government to reconsider how best to ensure the system is properly funded. But when pressed, the Premier pointed to the staff shortages right across the country. We don't have enough people, and uh, you can't change that in a weekend. You need to change that over time. Time is exactly what those in an emergency don't have. In fact, every second counts. Kelly Stanton, Global News. Well, the pandemic has exposed cracks in B.C.'s healthcare system, and many are sounding the alarm about the current crisis. Premier John Horgan, as you just saw, taking questions on Vancouver Island this morning, making a joke about taking an ad in the local newspaper to get the attention of the federal government for more healthcare funding. As Richard Zussman reports, his comment has not gone over well. A desperate plea. The ad reads, wanted... BC licensed medical doctor. Turning into the butt of a joke. Uh, maybe I'll take out an ad in the paper. I don't know. With a healthcare system in crisis, Premier John Horgan taking questions for the first time in weeks. 
It's also the first time since Janet Moore took out an ad in the Victoria Times columnist where she was looking for a family doctor for her husband, Michael. I would suggest that there are a whole bunch of other families that are scrambling to try and find access to primary care uh, using whatever means they have at their disposal, friends and family. Uh, that's usually how uh, these things happen. But the challenge is a personnel challenge. We don't have enough people. The ad worked. Michael now has a doctor and is prescription filled, but Horgan's idea of using his own ad, not working out so well. The Premier's uh, flippant comment uh, is, is very disrespectful to British Columbians who feel uh, completely concerned about how they're going to get the health care they need in British Columbia. <laughs> Horgan's quip was around what he would do if Ottawa does not come to the table with health care money. There's some optimism that the federal government is close to agreeing at least to a meeting with the premiers on funding. But every story like Mort's, a blow to the system. I can appreciate the desperation that that woman felt to get the care that she needed. And then as a system leader, someone who's navigating, you know, how do we make the system better? It's also heartbreaking. Like a complex care case, there's not a simple prescription to addressing staffing shortages and more demand for doctors. Without time and money and people, it's near impossible to solve any of them. The pressure is not only being felt by doctors. BC Nurses Union says they've seen a sharp rise in nurses being deployed to areas where they don't normally work. Just sort of moving people around to say that you have a body doesn't mean that then the patients are getting the care that's required and that they deserve. An example of a problem in the system that's no laughing matter. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And let's bring in Keith Baldry for more on the shortage of healthcare workers. Keith, what's mm -hmm. the reality of what government can do? You know, I put that question to Premier John Horgan at that news conference today, Sophie, pointing out there are shortages in all sorts of sectors. Healthcare, notably the most conspicuous, but also BC Ferries, for example. We've done stories on that. Restaurants aren't opening because they have no staff. Even lifeguards are now closing beaches. Uh, he agrees that there's no short-term fix here. It's not going to be solved overnight. And he does say it applies to sort of all walks of life. You're going to run into staff shortages on a daily basis. I think the public... Uh, people that are trying to access services, whether it's trying to get on a ferry uh, to get to a community or whether it's uh, ordering your coffee at the local uh, coffee shop, you're seeing that things are not the way they used to be. There's not as many people doing the work. Now uh, there's an increasing number of people looking for the service, whatever that service is. It's even managed to have an impact on broadcast news industry, Keith. Uh, adding <laughs> to the shortages in healthcare, people are off sick as well. So what's the latest on that front? Yeah, tough news here again. The situation hasn't changed. A lot of people, uh, much more so than pre-pandemic, are off ill for a very variety of reasons, presumably a lot of them uh, with COVID. So as of mid-July, in one given week, 15,776 healthcare workers reported sick, sick, sick hours. That's about 9.8% of the workforce. That compares to about 6.8% of the workforce pre-pandemic. So the increase in people being sick in healthcare in the pandemic is up about 30%. That's a big reason why we're seeing staff shortages there and in other sectors of the economy as well. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks for that, Keith Baldry in Victoria. Well, the lawyer for a man accused of harassing and extorting Port Coquitlam teenager Amanda Todd suggests hard drive evidence shows someone else was behind the accounts that tormented her. As Grace Key reports, it's one of the last theories the jury will hear before it begins deliberating. 
Defense wrapped up closing arguments today, this after two days of poking holes into Crown's case, identity being one of the key issues. Hard drives were seized from Aidan Coban's home in the Netherlands. Crown says Coban was sending sextortion messages to Amanda Todd through Facebook. But defense argues Facebook records show operating systems used for those messages didn't exist on the Dutch devices seized by police. Defense saying this is a significant hole in Crown's theory. This is actually evidence of people accessing these Facebook accounts from other devices, other computers. This is evidence of other people using Facebook accounts. Quran also argues that Coban is behind 22 aliases used for sextortion, and messages all had similar references. But defense pointed out different writing styles between accounts and that information and screen grabs could have been shared between users. I say Crown established there are connections between these accounts. I agree it is not a coincidence. That doesn't mean it's the same person. Defense also arguing that some of the devices showing communication with Amanda Todd could have come into Coban's possession because he was a computer repairman and the one device he did have a strong connection with had no mention of Todd, extortion or aliases. We spoke with Amanda's mother at the end of the day. It could go either way depending on how those jurors are thinking, right? Both sides did a good job, prosecution and defense, with what they were tasked to do. Um, we will see when, they, when they're ready to call us back in the court. The jury will be returning on Friday morning, and that's when they'll be getting their instructions from the judge. Then they'll be sequestered until they come up with a verdict. Grace Key, Global News. The Parole Board of Canada has released its reasons for granting day parole to a Surrey man who killed his pregnant wife and burned her body 16 years ago. The now 50-year-old Muktiara Pangali has been granted six months of conditional day parole to be served in a community correctional centre. The conditions following a treatment plan, uh, following a treatment plan rather, no drugs or alcohol and reporting all relationships. A psychological assessment found Pangali presents a low to moderate risk of violence while on day parole. In 2011, he was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 15 years. Police in B.C. are warning the public to avoid being around several men who they say are linked to previous gang-related killings and shootings. The Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit says these 11 men will likely be targeted by rival gang members, putting their family, friends and bystanders at risk. Police also promising to seize their property, including vehicles. This comes amid another string of brazen gangland killings in B.C., including in Whistler Village last month, where two men were shot dead outside the Sundial Hotel. The RCMP Serious Crimes Unit is looking into what, it's being, what is being called a targeted shooting in Kelowna. Officers were called to Kelowna General Hospital after getting word of a victim suffering from a serious gunshot wound at around 10 last night. Investigators have confirmed the Lower Mainland man was shot while at a Shell gas station in the 1800 block of KLO Road in Kelowna. While it is in the early stages of the investigation, early indications are that this is connected to people who are well-known to police. The Serious Crime Unit is working to determine a motive. As for the victim, police say it's unlikely he will survive.
Many people in the Okanagan are breathing easier tonight as cooler weather and lighter wind has significantly slowed the Karameas Creek wildfire from spreading. Our Kamala Karmali is live on Highway 3A, which has been impacted on and off by this fire. And Kamala, the weather is helping crews make a significant dent in extinguishing the flames. Sophie, we wouldn't be able to stand where we are on Highway 3A this time yesterday. And although this big plume of smoke behind me looks intimidating, it's actually a huge improvement from yesterday. And even earlier last week, when the fire moved so fast, it destroyed a home. A home destroyed, believed to be the first structure consumed by the Karameas Creek fire Saturday when it was in its infancy. Ash was raining all over my house. That was Les Murza's house near Apex Mountain. It was a work in progress that was almost complete. I was just about finished putting new shingles on the house. Had everything I owned sitting in that house. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before I was completely finished, the entire thing burned down. Days later, and after several fierce battles against a fast-moving fire, some signs of normalcy returning to the South Okanagan Valley Wednesday. People returning to fish. Today, not fires. Yesterday is fires here. And even golf. We are all breathing a bit easier. The air is more clear. Another good sign, Highway 3A reopening Wednesday morning. The corridor between Penticton and Karameas, key for some businesses like this family-run fruit stand. That's a good feeling. Got more customers in. That means making more money, obviously. But the battle far from over. More than 250 firefighters still trying to tackle the blaze from all sides. The size remaining roughly the same, with more than 300 homes still on evacuation order. A short distance away, Penticton's Peach Festival kicking off for the first time since the pandemic began. But contingency plans also in place. There's so many different scenarios and we have we have lots of lots of plans that we have on on the board. Knowing there's a dark cloud that continues to loom over the event. Kamal Karmali reporting near Karameas. Now let's take a closer look at the wildfire situation across the province. There are currently 73 wildfires burning in BC, 31 of which were sparked in the last two days. 55 of the active fires were caused by lightning, and there are now six wildfires of note. And one of those new wildfires of note is burning south of Cranbrook. The Connell Ridge blaze is estimated to be 500 hectares. Officials say the fire is expected to get even bigger through the evening thanks to winds in the forecast. As a result, six properties in the Mount Connell area are under evacuation alert. It's insane. Seems like it's burning like crazy. You can see the smoke from down there, so where we're staying, it's insane. Hopefully the, the winds stay down and they can get this one under control. We've been pretty lucky, though. And a Conair 802 air tractor Fireboss skimmer aircraft, similar to this one, experienced an engine failure while working the Connell Ridge wildfire on Tuesday night. Thankfully, the pilot was able to walk away and sustain no serious physical injuries. Conair is now working with the Transportation Safety Board, Transport Canada, and the Wildfire Service to determine what may have caused the engine failure. We have some breaking news to report now. Crews are dealing with a large house fire near Camby and Marine in South Vancouver at this hour.
The three-alarm blaze was called in just after 4.30 this afternoon. Flames could be seen pouring from the roof of a home in the 7900 block of Columbia Street. Witnesses say it appears the flames may have spread to a neighboring home. There's no word at this point if either of the homes was occupied at the time. The smoke, though, could be seen from across Metro Vancouver. Well, sticker shock of a different kind around Metro Vancouver. Why so many gas stations are running on empty. That's next on the news hour. A tense situation at Metro Town SkyTrain Station. The details of this dramatic scene later on the news hour. Also tonight, holy hail, the record-setting weather that swept through central Alberta. Right now, though, drivers in parts of the province are getting some relief at the pumps with gas prices dropping. But not all gas stations actually have the cheaper fuel because of a supply shortage. As Catherine Urquhart reports, a number of stations are posting zeros. Across Metro Vancouver, many gas stations are now posting zeros. As in, zero gas is available. Somebody at work was saying they've seen a few gas stations roped off and they're pretty much out of gas. I got like four jelly cans at the back of my truck. The zeros are showing up as prices are dropping. And that's not a coincidence. Paul Pasco with energy research firm Calibrate says there's also a refinery issue. Last week was the Point Cherry Refinery down in Washington was down just for scheduled maintenance and sort of the perfect storm of scheduled maintenance falling prices, inciting driving, and so demand was a little greater than expected. It's a problem elsewhere in B.C. as well, such as Kamloops, where signs saying no gas have been placed on pumps. We have to call the gas station to confirm if ever they do have gas. The good news? Supply chains are expected to improve soon, and prices could fall even more. Everything should resume back to normal. Shouldn't see any price spikes coming in and hopefully some further relief coming at the pumps in, in the tune of maybe two to five cents a litre coming in the, in the next week or two. Gas prices and gas availability likely to be an ongoing concern for most British Columbians in the months ahead. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Coming up, demanding answers and the disappearance of Noel Osu. I think we could have done more you know, searching for her, you know, than they did at the very beginning. A news hour investigation into the tragic death of a vulnerable girl. Plus, a vigil about to get underway for the victims of last week's shooting rampage in Langley. We have a live report next. A stalled tandem dump truck in Surrey causing delays for northbound traffic on 152nd Street at 82nd Avenue. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a stalled semi in Surrey. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. A vigil is getting underway in Langley tonight for the victims of a mass shooting in that city last week. Krista Dow is live with more on the gathering. And of course, Krista, two men were killed and two others seriously injured in that shooting last week. 
Sophie, it has been more than a week since that deadly shooting, and there remain many unanswered questions here in the community. What was the killer's motive, and why were his victims targeted? Those are questions the community here wants answered as that vigil gets underway. You see uh, several dozen people gathering to pay tribute and remember and honor victims like 60-year-old Paul Wynn, also known as Small Paul, 43-year-old Stephen Furness. Both were victims killed in the early morning hours of July 25th when a lone gunman, Jordan Goggin, went on a shooting rampage firing at four people over the course of six hours at multiple locations in Langley. The shooter died by police gunfire. Two others were injured, and we've gotten an update on the female victim. She remains in hospital in serious condition. The homicide team tells me they can't still provide details like what gun was used, how many shots were fired, as that remains under the purview of the police watchdog investigation. Tonight's healing, though, looking to provide support and healing for the community. The sad part is we should all be working together and we're not. It's not just Kim's Angels or other, you know, resources and that. We, should, we all need to work together with the government and like people in the community. We should actually have done this before the shooting happened. The thing is, is people do not acknowledge that we have homeless in our community, and we do. Our community is mourning right now, and we've had this tragic incident happen, and we need to talk about it. We need to not keep it bottled in, up inside, and we need to come together as a community and show our support. And, Sophie, as far as the investigation goes, the homicide team tells me they have received tips and information from the public that does provide a clearer picture of what happened. But before they can release that information to us, they say that they need to check in with the suspect's family as well as other health providers. So we do expect those details in the coming days. But it's hoped those answers will provide some clarity for those here in the community. A lot of people hoping for answers, I'm sure. All right, thanks for that. Krista Dow reporting in Langley. Now to a Global News exclusive that includes some disturbing details. 13-year-old Noelle Osoup, an Indigenous girl found dead inside a Vancouver SRO in May, was in the care of the Ministry of Children and Family Development when she went missing from a group home in Port Coquitlam. Global News has learned her extended family members had been pleading with the ministry to take Noelle and her siblings in. Sarah McDonald has the details in the second part of an investigative series into the life and death of a vulnerable child. She was a child, even more vulnerable than most. So how did Noelle Soup simply vanish from foster care? And why was she there in the first place? I was looking for, you know, a bigger home, a bigger place so that I could take this kid in. Something was going on behind the scenes. I have no clue. We kept asking questions. We kept getting the runaround. So many still unanswered questions, only compounding the pain of Osoup's extended family. A network of elders, cousins, aunts and uncles like Cody Munch, who live in northern B.C. and had lobbied to remove Osoup and her siblings from foster care. His 13-year-old niece, instead, placed in a Port Coquitlam group home by the province, where she was supposedly under the supervision of the Ministry of Children and Family Development, until she wasn't. Obviously, there was something going on because, you know, like a little girl is not just going to run away and think that East Hastings and Heatley is like her best option. Were they even looking? Osoup would eventually be returned to her loved ones, but only in death. Her remains found inside a unit in this privately owned Vancouver SRO in May. 
nearly a year after she vanished and months after she died, but not before being overlooked one final time. The guy that was living in the place had, you know, like after they found him, they didn't, you know, bother to search the rest of his apartment. Her decomposed remains found alongside those of a woman in her 30s inside the residence of a man in his 40s. The deaths of both females considered suspicious. What that kid could have been, she could have been anything that she wanted to be. After failing to achieve its most basic mandate of ensuring the safety of a child in its care, the Ministry of Children and Family Development continues to avoid accountability, refusing to answer even the most basic of questions posed publicly by Global News and privately by Osoup's own family. The only step forward that we were given as an opportunity to review Noelle's files while she was in the care of MCFD was to apply for a Freedom of Information Act. A 13-year-old is never going back to her parents, her extended family, or her community. How did we get to that point? Child protection lawyer Rosalind Chambers, who's witnessed the failures and the fallout of the foster care system firsthand, says the circumstances of Osoup's case sadly aren't surprising. They don't have the appropriate resources to be able to adequately care for children. Children who run away, there's usually a reason they run away. So what was the situation that she, she ran away from, from that group home? Something her extended family says they weren't even made aware of until Osoup had been missing for days. I think we could have done more, you know, searching for her, you know, than they did at the very beginning. And ironically, according to family, the same people who somehow lost track of Osoup while she was alive did show up for her at her funeral despite being asked to leave. MCFD social workers did show up to Noelle's service and they were asked to leave by a family member. And when they were asked to leave by this family member, they said that they had been invited. Osoup's family says her tragic case has a direct correlation to the Catholic Church's historical abuse of indigenous children at residential institutions and the generational trauma that followed. It's like a cycle of generations you know, that's three generations. The Pope's apology last week for decades of abuse coming as cold comfort to a family still reaping the repercussions of what it considers a modern version of an outdated institution. These foster homes are the new residential schools. RCMP officers and MCFD are just the new priests and the new nuns, you know, that can't seem to do their job right. And left waiting still on the most basic of answers. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Coming up, what's next for Hastings Street? There's no plan. I, I, there just needs to be a better plan. No movement on the tent city as another deadline passes. Plus, the dramatic scene at a busy SkyTrain station just ahead on the news hour. All the stories, all the action from all the teams that come to play. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Good evening. Traffic is steady here at the Massey Tunnel in both directions. Keep in mind, though, south of the tunnel on the Delta side, there is overnight road work on Highway 17A. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trishti Wissin in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. A teenager is facing multiple charges after a dramatic scene at a Metro at Metrotown Skytrain station on Tuesday. Get down! Get down! Get down!
Burnaby RCMP say they were yelling at the 17-year-old suspect to get down after he dropped a knife and reached for another. Moments before, police say he was being aggressive and threatening inside the mall. After tracking him to the SkyTrain station, police tried to taser the teen, but it didn't work. He then took off up the escalator and was arrested on the SkyTrain with three knives. The suspect has been charged with assaults with a weapon and possession of a weapon for a dangerous purpose. The process of removing tents from the encampment along Hastings Street was supposed to start today, but the city has pushed back that deadline. Tents are still intact in the area, and as Amadagahi reports, police officers and firefighters were in the area today, not moving anyone out. Nine days have now passed since an urgent order from the Vancouver Fire Department demanding the removal of tents and makeshift structures from the sidewalks on East Hastings Street. And still, no movement. There's nowhere for people to go. There's um, been no plan. Do you see it being feasible to ask this many people to tear down their structures? Absolutely not. The city of Vancouver has been tasked with facilitating the removal of those tents by Fire Chief Karen Fry whose order last week warned the blocking of building exits and entryways could prove catastrophic in the event of a fire. But the urgency of that warning seemingly unmatched by the actions of city staff, who Wednesday was not actively present on East Hastings Street and refused an interview to explain why. There's no plan. I, I, there just needs to be a better plan. These people don't want to be here, you know, um, but they got no place to go. The summer has seen an increase in the number of unhoused people having to visibly take shelter on Hastings Street attributed to a lack of affordable housing, inadequate mental health and addiction support and the poor conditions of the current SRO housing stock. Those who even have tents to sleep in here are seen as the more fortunate. Some living on the streets say if city staff move the tents from here, it would mean they will have to pop up somewhere else. Where are they going to go? Are we going to go in their backyard? It's like Jenga. The pieces are always going to be there. Others desperate for sympathy and solutions. Well, it hurts, you know. I know what I was like, you know. And it doesn't matter what your situation is. Everybody deserves better. I don't know what the answers are, but there's got to be answers. Answers the city was not able to provide before our deadline. Instead, an email late in the day by a city spokesperson said staff is extending the deadline for compliance with an urgent fire order into next week. Amadagahi, Global News. Still to come, the expanding B.C. contingent on the Golden State Warriors. Steve was like another Canadian. He looked at Rick, he's like, what? How she's helping wounded warriors get back on the court. And up next, hail you could play ball with and how they smashed records in Alberta just ahead.
we're learning more about an extreme weather event that shook central Alberta and wreaked havoc on dozens of cars. Researchers with the Northern Hail Project, based out of Western University in Ontario, collected hail samples from Monday's storm. Currently, they're studying the stones at Red Deer College. So far, they've determined this hailstone is the biggest the province has ever seen, shattering the previous record. At least in terms of diameter, definitely. One of the stones we measured was over 12 centimeters across. Uh, previous records for Alberta were about 10.5 centimeters. The last event for which we had uh, such a large number of really big hailstones was the uh, Black Friday event on the 31st of July, 1987. That took place in Edmonton almost 25 years to the day. Experts say the reason for the large hailstones on Monday was due to the strong updraft of the storm. Well, we have our own expert here with us, <laughs> meteorologist uh, Yvonne Schell with a look at our weather forecast. And boy, uh, I was so happy this morning. <laughs> it was cooler. It's very pleasant. It's a welcome change. We're not getting the hail, but the precipitation that we are tracking is rain with cooler temperatures. And it's been a nice break for many areas across the province. And I'm sure many have a good, had a good night's sleep as well. Here's what we're looking at right now, though. We're starting to see that rain picking up out of the airport. Temperatures are sitting at 18. And we've got a northwesterly wind at 7 kilometers per hour. As we get in through this evening and overnight tonight, we'll still hang on to that chance of showers. And we're just starting to see it along the west end. It'll push its way in for eastern areas and extending into the Fraser Valley. We've seen that rainfall for Squamish to Whistler and a few spots across the island, but all areas along the south coast will see a chance of showers continuing overnight and for tomorrow morning before it dries out once again. Bit of instability at this hour for the northeastern corners of the province. Area of concern is Fort Nelson with the potential to still see upwards of 20 millimeters of rain. However, we are still seeing the cooler temperatures and a bit of a reprieve, but we still have the fire danger rating sitting at high to extreme for many areas across the province to still be very diligent. And the big concern as we get in through the day tomorrow will be the risk of thunderstorms. So lightning, a concern. One area that we're keeping a close eye on will be for the central interior as we get in through the afternoon and early evening. And we're tracking rainfall heavy at times for Kinbasket as well as the North Columbia region. A special weather statement has been issued. Rainfall picking up and continuing for tomorrow with anywhere between 15 and potentially up to 25 millimeters. So we're tracking wet weather and also the risk of thunderstorms. Now, heads up, it's a brief break for what we're anticipating. As we get in towards the weekend, temperatures are going to warm up once again. Be prepared. We'll be into the low 30s for areas away from the water, and we'll see that heat once again for the southern interior leading into early next week as well. Risk of thunderstorms for the peace, much of the central interior. The southern half will see cooler temperatures tomorrow into the low 20s, but that risk of a thunderstorm posing a concern in most areas along the south coast with some showers continuing into the morning hours should ease off, and then we're rebounding back into some sunshine once again leading in towards the weekend. All right, tonight's weather window, a great shot that was captured of uh, Sunset and Steveson and this one taken by Sharon. So that is lovely. Steveson's so lovely. Thank you very much, Yvonne. All right, Squire Barnes is here with a look ahead to sports. What you got for us, Squire? Well, among other things, uh, BC Lions receiver Brian Burnham should be able to play Saturday against Edmonton after being out for six weeks. And he says he's not surprised he got over his injury. No, I was honestly surprised I didn't come back sooner. He is back after suffering broken ribs, a punctured lung, and with him back, Nathan Rourke has yet another weapon to pass to. Yikes, sounds serious. And later, from basketball player to basketball healer, the BC woman helping Golden State's wounded warriors to another championship.
Square's okay. going to take me to the casino and teach me how to play craps with his money. Yeah. You said, I don't want to go to the <laughs> casino and lose. I said, yeah, no, yeah. nobody else does either. But I want to go to the usually casino. usually not the case. I don't want to lose my money. Okay, well, you can lose <laughs> my money. I'm happy to help. Well, you're good at the casino. Thing. Well, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you're going to win, though. You can know everything and still lose. That's your money. The house always wins. <laughs> okay. You and I are not houses. Okay. So it's now official. The Whitecaps have added another piece to their midfield, signing Austrian international Alessandro Schoff to a contract which lasts through the 2024 season, but there's also a team option for 2025. And Schoff has big-time experience. He has played games in Germany. He's played in the Euros. He's played in Champions League. He's a good pickup. The Whitecaps have been trying to strengthen their midfield for the last year and a bit. Now, he's a former Bayern Munich prospect who uh, plays with lots of energy. He can score as well. He's scoring right here for Austria against Scotland. Six international goals. Has played in the Bundesliga. So the Caps get another piece who will up their skill level. BC Lions are off to their best start since 2007, 5-1, and, and most of that has been done without one of their star players and receiver Brian Burnham. But he's healthy again and ready to get, it, get in, I should say, on the gifts that quarterback Nathan Rourke passes out like some sort of football Santa Claus. I feel great. It's so good to be back out here in practice, running around. Um, yeah, I don't feel it at all. It feels good running around, banging into guys, so... Uh, I've been going out of my way to bump into a couple guys just to test it out, and it feels good. And it's going to be good to have Brian Burnham back in the lineup when BC hosts Edmonton on Saturday, six weeks after Burnham suffered fractured ribs and a punctured lung on a hit that didn't look like much but did a fair bit of damage to one of the CFL's top pass catchers. This isn't necessarily something you want to just, just want to push through, um, dealing with the collapsed lung. I don't want to deal with that again. So you got to be smart. you got to let things heal. And these types of, you know, the ribs, it takes time. There's nothing you can really do to speed up the process. So you just had to be patient, but uh, it's all healed and it feels good and I'm ready to go. Being patient while healing up reminded Burnham of his childhood when as a 12-year-old, he made a deal with his dad when it came to playing football and dealing with injuries. I remember there was a game my first year playing football where my knee hurt or something like that and I didn't play in the game. And he, he sat me down and he, you know, he told me, you need to understand this is a tough game for tough people. And if you're going to play, you need to be tough and you need to push through stuff like that. So my mentality has always been, uh, if you can go, you can go. You know, if you're injured, if you're hurt, you can't protect yourself, that's different. You, you need to sit out. But if I could play, you know, let's go. Pain is, you know, I kind of joke around with guys who, who have bumps and bruises. I tell them pain, you know, it lets you know that you're alive. Um, but, no, man, it's just, it's just pushing through a little bit. And, you know, I have my dad to thank for that, um, just that mental and physical toughness. Um, that's football, man. you got to be tough. Last night, the great Vin Scully, the humble wordsmith who was part announcer and part poet and voice of the Dodgers for 67 years, died at the age of 94. He also did play-by-play on television, for baseball, of course, the NFL and PGA golf, and will always be remembered for his unique, relaxed style that made him iconic to millions of fans over the many years 
that he worked the broadcast booth. And there are tributes all over Major League Baseball today and tonight. Vin Scully's face on the Jumbotron in Tampa Bay where the Blue Jays played what for us was a morning game against the Rays. And Teoscar Hernandez's home run here gave Toronto a 2-1 lead, but they couldn't hold that lead. David Peralta driving in what proves to be the winning run and Tampa Bay takes it by the score of 3-2. And now to the Bronx, Yankee Stadium, where the Mariners had a six-run first inning. Eugenio Suarez here with the three-run shot. So it was the Mariners who were bombing the Bronx Bombers, and they celebrated, since they're in New York, by auditioning for some sort of Broadway play. I don't know if you'll be able to see it. Oh, you won't be able to see it. That's unfortunate. Okay. Rebecca Marino, Andrea Petkovic, round of 16, City Open. Marino won the first set 6-3. She dominated the third set 6-1. So with three, she will play in the quarterfinals on Friday. And tomorrow night, 7.30 at the Langley Event Center, the Fraser Valley Bandits will play the Guelph Nighthawks in a do-or-die playoff game. If the Bandits should win this one, they go to Scarborough for another playoff game on Sunday. And the winner of that goes to Championship Weekend in Ottawa. There you go. All right. Well done. Thank you very much. Thank you. Up next, a former basketball star from B.C. who has one up on Steve Nash. Jordan Armstrong now with a look ahead to Global News at 11. Jordan? Sophie, we're staying on top of that big fire in South Vancouver. Crews remain on scene this hour, putting out hot spots. It appears one home at Columbia and 63rd is a total loss, and a neighboring home has heavy damage. Fortunately, the flames did not spread to a condo complex just across the alley. So far, no injuries have been reported. Fire officials aren't commenting yet on a possible cause, but a witness we spoke to says he believes it was sparked by someone's reckless behavior, and he'll describe what he saw and heard at 11. Sophie. Got to be careful when it uh, is as dry as it has been recently. Thank you very much, Jordan. All right. As you'll see, Squire has not left his chair. No, I have not. And you know what? This chair is much nicer than the one you gave me last night. Oh, is that not broken? No, it's not broken. Oh, that's good. Okay. So about 20-some-odd years ago, uh, someone told us, you guys should really go out and do a story on this high school player named Danny Langford. Mm -hmm. And we did, and we followed her career to SFU, and we're still following her career because now she is in the NBA, but not as a player, but helping players. Danny Langford is one of the best basketball players BC has ever produced. And she's been on teams that have won provincial titles, Canadian titles, and this year she won an NBA title. Um, it's been an amazing year, an amazing run, and, and a combination of a past life of basketball um, with a present life of, of a career. Her career is physiotherapy, and her job is manager of player rehabilitation for the Golden State Warriors. So when a player got injured, I helped with that process of, of bringing them back to the court. Good push, drive to get there. Good, good push. Danny Langford is yet another expert who was mentored in a BC sports medicine community that has become world-renowned. There's a, there's a physio culture, there's a medical culture here and, and amazing mentors that I've benefited from um, that are very willing to share and to bring you into, into it. 
One of those mentors is legendary physio Alex McKechnie, who became known to the NBA through his work with Shaquille O'Neal and has since won six NBA titles with the Lakers and the Raptors. You know, outside of sports medicine, we're talking just rehab in general, and, and there's some t incredible people in this, in this area. There's something about it, I don't know what it is, but I, I know that, that from a manual therapy standpoint, that they've been leaders in, for many years. And Golden State has tapped in the BC's expertise in this field. In fact, there are four from this province who are working with the Warriors. Rick Celebrini, um, who is our head of medical and performance. Uh, Jerry Ramagita, uh, he used to work with me at Fortius as well, a chiropractor. And um, Carl Bergstrom, and he's the head of performance. Danny grew up with basketball, often coached by her father, Bruce. So to get back to it and work with the Golden State Warriors players was perfect. Yeah, the players, the players were great um, from the get-go, and, and the coaches and our, again, performance staff, medical staff, everyone was very welcoming, front office staff. It's, it definitely, with the Warriors, has a feel like a family, um, and they do, they care about family, and they care about you. And the last shot, of course, was her family. So she's getting a ring. She'll get a ring. That's gonna she's going to get a ring. Do they size it? Same ring, same ring. Oh, no, everybody gets sized. But, but it's still going to be huge. It, it's they're be always huge. They're, they're really not conducive to wearing out. Except maybe on your thumb uh, or on your wrist. Or, if you, you know, usually if you go to, like, a, a banquet or something, people want to see it. Oh, yeah. But you don't often see people wear mm -hmm. out. I want to see the ring on her finger. Yes. <laughs> That'll be a sight. So when she gets it, Danny, give Squire a call. Send us a photo. All right, um, Yvonne, final word on the weather. A reprieve. We're still seeing cooler temperatures, uh, tracking showers overnight and in towards the morning hours. Shitty's off towards the afternoon, and then it warms up gradually, especially as we get in towards the weekend. So a heads up, break tomorrow, and then hot again for the weekend. Jordan Armstrong's dad oh, has yeah. two Stanley Cup rings from That's the Tampa right. Bay Lightning. That's right. They also are huge. They're all huge. Jordan needs to bring that in. He did one day. You weren't here. You missed it. Do it again, Jordan. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.